Chapter 12 A month after Ryan moved in, Dodge invited him down to his office for a drink. Dodge thought Ryan was an interesting case, outwardly calm and easygoing, but constantly fidgeting. He couldn't tell whether Ryan's constantly tapping fingers were nerves or excess energy. There was a difference. So he poured them each a tumbler of whiskey and then waited. Ryan swirled his drink in one hand and tapped his fingers in time with the reverberation of music from upstairs. Dodge set his fingertips together and pretended to stare at them, but kept an eye on the revolver he left out on the desk. Obviously not realizing what he was doing, Ryan started rubbing his fingers along the short barrel. Dodge tried not to laugh. The instant that Ryan realized he was touching the gun, he jerked his fingers away. Dodge couldn't hold it any longer. His laughter finished in a cough. <laughs> Dodge said, Tell me everything about your patents. Ryan told him the story of his first day at GoldCon about the $500 bonus just for submitting them and the 5000 for having them approved. Stop! Dodge interrupted. Run that by me again. When the patents were granted, I got two checks for $2,500 because I'd co-authored two patents. Foster got two checks too, get it? We split the 5000 for each patent. But for submitting the patents, you each got checks for $500. Right. So they gave each of you the full award when the patents were submitted, but split the awards between you when they were granted? Lines formed in Ryan's brow, arcing up to the sharp widow's peak of his dark auburn wire bristle hair. Yeah, but it was fair enough. Two authors on each, after all. We were psyched that they didn't split the submission bonus, too. His forehead relaxed. We got our boat. Do you remember anything, anything, in the documentation describing the patent award bonus about splitting the award for multiple authors? I don't think so. You're not sure? Ryan shrugged. Dodge said, Was there anything between the phrasing of the bonus for submitting the patents and the phrasing of the bonus for when the patents were granted? Ryan shook his head. No, I'm sure of that. It definitely said the same thing for submitting as it did for granting. Did you get the patent submission bonus before you got the patent granted bonus? Yeah, it took almost a year for the patents to go through. Dodge leaned back in his chair. Glee filled his stomach. If he played it right, there would be a quick settlement with just enough rancor to make it sporting. Nice. Dodge said, I don't suppose you still have that document. Ryan shook his head. Dodge continued. They paid you in full for both patent submissions, but only gave you half when they were granted. In legal terms, by giving you the full amount for the submission, they defined an implied contract. The implied contract guaranteed you each the full amount when the patents were granted. They didn't deliver. Bingo. Fraud marries mistake and gives birth to an implied contract. That patent rights waiver you signed is out the window. You still have rights to those patents. God, I love this. Dodge flicked his wrist at Ryan, waving him out of the office. There was a case to plan. Chapter 13 Ryan walked upstairs to his apartment, shaking his head. Every interaction with Dodge was more complicated than the previous. 
For Ryan, the discussion had brought back bad memories. Last he'd heard, Foster Reed was a graduate student at some podunk school in West Texas. Foster's name was obscure enough that a web search got Ryan to Evangelical Word University's site in a few minutes. Two clicks later, he was staring at a list of the EWU Department of Earthly Science faculty. There he was, Foster Reed, Ph.D., Associate Professor of Physics and Cosmology. Along with his research interests, creation-based energy generation and cosmology, it listed his email address and phone number. A woman with a vibrant Texas twang answered, Dr. Reed's office. He had his own secretary? Not bad. Ryan asked for Foster, told the lady he was an old friend, and sat on hold for a few seconds. There was a clicking sound, and then a familiar voice said, Ryan? There was another click on the line. Ryan, oh my, where are you, man? What are you doing? Ryan leaned back and grinned. Foster. The guy was always trying to sound cool, but could never pull it off. The crazy thing was that down deep, Foster wasn't nearly as uptight as he seemed, and when you least expected it, he'd come up with an idea that would totally blow you away. Plus, he was loyal. Hound dog loyal. Hey man, what kind of goofball school would make you a professor? Ryan, I found it. It's like I told you. We got laid off for a reason. I followed the path, and here I am, a physics professor at the coolest, most righteous university in the world. Foster rambled on about his wonderful wife, career, and religion. Ryan recognized jealousy and fought it by picturing his own path, the sun setting behind the Golden Gate. Foster's voice turned serious. Ryan, are things getting better? Do you need help? There were few things left in Ryan's life that he was proud of. That he still had a friend on whom he could rely was a big one. Things are starting to come together. I landed in California last month. Why California? Ryan thought it was obvious. What better place to jump back on the high-tech gravy train, but couldn't resist telling the more immediate truth. Running from the law? Foster laughed. Hold it! What are you up to? Hacking code in Silicon Valley? Well, I just got here, but that's the idea. Actually, I'm a couple of hours north of Silicon Valley in the wine country. But the big question is, what are you doing, Professor? Being the luckiest guy in the world, Foster said. After we got laid off, I came here to EWU and did my Ph.D. in physics. I'm the world's leading expert on the cosmology of creation. The university published my dissertation as a book. You can download it from the website. He waited a second before continuing, as though debating whether or not to fill Ryan in. Ryan, I made an important discovery. Those two patents we did the first day at GoldCon fit together like a divine jigsaw puzzle. It's amazing. It can save humanity. We can generate essentially free energy, no greenhouse gases, and no waste. But when I say it can save humanity, I mean that it can save our souls. By developing this technology, we'll prove that God created man and earth and that there is eternal life. We're building the power generator right now. Foster had always been both ridiculously enthusiastic about his work and a man of tremendous faith. The enthusiasm had always infected Ryan, but right now, Ryan was uncomfortable. Minutes before, he had watched Dodge rub his hands together like a cartoon villain. Ryan felt like a spy. Yeah, 
I heard that a university bought the rights to those patents. That's why I called. Do you really think that... I believe it to the very core of my spirit. Look, I spent the last few years studying relativistic quantum field theory. It's amazing how our two patents fit together. Typical Foster. The enthusiasm freight train blew right by Ryan's admission that he knew something was cooking. He tried to spell it out. Do we have any rights to those patents? Rats? What do you mean? Ryan thought he heard a suspicious edge in Foster's voice. Well, that's sort of why I called. I signed this lease, and Foster made his confused tisk sound and said, No, we have no rights. They're owned by the university. We both signed the patent rights waiver, remember? Yeah, I know. It's just that I have this crazy landlord, and... But you know what? Foster's confusion converted back to enthusiasm. We're going to need a software director. Funding is kind of short right now, but we're getting calls from investors all the time. I just got here, signed a lease. Part of him wanted to level with Foster and admit that he couldn't go back to Texas because he'd go to jail, but pride got in the way. I need to stand my own, too, you know? This is the opportunity of a lifetime. Yeah, that's what my stockbroker said when I bought WorldCom at 50 bucks a share. They both laughed. Ryan, God was watching over our shoulders that day. Foster, listen. Ryan took a breath. I signed a lease that gave my landlord 25% of my rights to those patents. You don't have rights to them. I thought so too, but this guy, we're going to get major funding and I'm going to need your help. Foster paused and Ryan could practically hear him look at his watch. I have to go to a meeting now, but keep it in mind. This is big, Ryan. I understand that you need to prove a few things to yourself, but remember, I'll be praying for you. Foster, wait. My landlord thinks that, Ryan, I have to go. Email your address. I'll mail you my book. It took his computer almost a full minute to bring up an email window, and by the time it got there, Ryan was scrolling through the patents. He'd always felt funny about them, and now he realized why. It wasn't because he thought they were bogus. It was because he'd always had this niggling feeling that they might not be bogus. In his office downstairs, Dodge hung up the phone. He picked up the revolver and tapped it on the gavel pad a few times. He loved watching the cards being dealt, and two new ones, the ace that Foster Reed thought the technology could actually be developed, could mean a lot more money, and the deuce that Foster might offer Ryan a job could blow the whole scam. His sister Emmy was the wild card. He twirled the pistol on his finger like a gunslinger. Timing! Timing and patience! Wait until these bozos smell cash. Show them the wild card. Let them sweat. And then pull the trigger while the pot is full. Bang. Chapter 14 Professor Foster Reed waited backstage. Back sanctuary, really. This was the sixth huge church he'd been invited to. The 10,000-strong Greatest Good Christian Center in Alexandria, Virginia had video screens showing the preacher from every angle, spotlights, and an acoustically tuned ceiling. Foster, like a paladin adjusting his armor before battle, tightened his tie and made sure his shirt was tucked in and coat properly buttoned. The internal battle between faith in God and doubt in himself was a sure sign that he would be introduced soon. Every congregation he'd visited had been thrilled to welcome him, 
Foster Reed, a scientist defending Genesis on the atheist's turf. But that initial excitement always dissolved into boredom, if not contempt, by the time he finished. At home, up in Evangelical Word University's ivory tower, this sermon, more like a lecture really, seemed guaranteed to deliver the support he would need when the battle grew pitched. The battle itself, though, that was a different problem. The project could survive, but couldn't move forward without substantial financial support. He knew better than to doubt that the right support would arrive at the right time. Not the time he thought was right, but at the time God made right. He would wait. Through Foster's entire life, every seeming coincidence had pushed him farther along this path. It was this knowledge, so certain in his heart, that impaled him with shame when self-doubt tried to possess him. The preacher, a man in his sixties with big eyes and a bigger smile, spoke softly. We are under attack. His voice got louder with each word. The courts tear down the commandments. Evolutionists and homosexuals demean the Bible, and the humanists silence prayer in the schools you pay for. He paused between sentences to let the audience know it was time to yell a hallelujah or an amen. And when that crowd responded, it was probably loud enough to be heard clear to Washington, D.C. Foster hoped so, anyway. The preacher paused, scanning every row of the stadium, and then spoke softly. Today, I present to you the man who will return the word of God to science. The word science brought Foster to his feet. A few scattered amens echoed up to the stage. Professor Foster Reed. He turned to face Foster and applauded. The congregation joined in applause as Foster walked out. He shook hands with the preacher and, though he considered applause inappropriate in God's house, beamed at the congregation. One woman, who had sung so loudly that Foster had been able to make out her voice among the thousands, looked content but determined. In a row behind her, a black man with a shaved head was scowling. He waited for the woman to make eye contact. A thin, older gentleman in the front row returned a welcoming smile. Foster switched on the headset microphone. The lights, too bright to see past the first dozen rows, warmed his skin to a righteous glow. He took his time, glanced at his notes, absorbed the congregation's faith. He felt his jaw tighten and the muscles down his back grow rigid. The inspiration like everything else in his life, was there, not when he wanted it, but when he needed it. Several years ago, when I was an engineer at a high-tech company, God guided me to a discovery. Like Paul on the road to Damascus, I was confused. He told the story of the day he and Ryan had written the patent submissions, trying to impart his belief that they'd been guided by the Lord that day. But the thin old man's eyes narrowed as though he were dozing off. The woman looked past him into the sanctuary, and the black man shook his head. Foster stopped. It just wasn't working. He fought a feeling of contempt for these people. They should embrace science, but instead science offended them. He looked through his notes. The woman finally looked back at him, but she wasn't happy. The black man snickered and looked away. In that instant, Foster felt alone, a foreign feeling that contradicted his faith. He hadn't felt this way since he was a child. Back in first grade, he'd gotten lost during a field trip to a museum. He'd been meandering along, and when he turned around, no one was there. 
He went back the way he'd come, but took a wrong turn and ended up alone in a huge room of Gothic portraits. With all those strange faces staring down at him, he started to cry. Staring at the floor, he moped to another room and nearly walked into a wall. There, in front of him, as though greeting him personally, was a painting with a boy about his age being guided by two people in robes. He sat in front of that painting, and his fear and loneliness were replaced by warmth and strength. He talked to the boy in the painting, and when he asked the boy a question, the answer came to him. In that presence he could feel no loneliness. Finally, his classmates entered the room. His teacher, surprised that she'd found him before realizing he'd been missing, read the title, Jesus Found at the Temple, and told him it was painted by a man named Tissot. Foster fumbled his notes. The pages fluttered around the stage, and he staggered about, trying to collect them. Then he caught himself. On one knee, with the pages a mess in his hand, the image of Jesus in that painting came back to him. As though something was lifting him up, he stood and said one word, Science! He waited. The black man turned away, and the woman scowled. This time he yelled, Science! A few muffled hems and haws echoed in response. Why don't we embrace science? Why can't you embrace science? The black man responded, Because it violates the word. Foster stepped to the edge of the stage. Science is the ultimate expression of God's work. It can't violate the word. The room went silent. He gave us minds so that we could understand. The intellectual thieves of the scientific establishment stole science from us. They reject God, and in response, we reject science. He paced across the stage. Do you believe in the Big Bang? The parish chanted, No! Foster said, The Bible is infallible, but it leaves out a lot of detail. My lab is filling in those details. The Big Bang is a fine theory, but it's not finished. Foster reached out. When it's all said and done, science will verify everything in the Bible. There can be no contradictions. Scattered voices responded, Amen. He looked down and shuffled his feet. Those scientists, they don't believe. Then he looked up and spoke with conviction. But they will. His ad-lib lecture took longer than the one he'd prepared, and when he finished, he felt a rush like none he'd felt before. He'd won them. Ten thousand people he could count on for support, whether for letters to Congress, phone calls to newspapers, or emails to TV shows. His troops were lining up for battle. An hour later, exhausted but triumphant, a question danced into his mind. He'd given that lecture half a dozen times. Why did it finally come out the way he'd wanted today? He chuckled to himself, certain that the answer would come soon. On a table in the church bookstore, Foster set out copies of his book, The Cosmology of Creation. The black man from the audience brought him a cup of coffee and bought a signed copy. The woman asked, what is it like to discover what he did? After the congregation reassembled, as Foster packed up the remaining books, a trio of men wearing dark suits approached. One pitched in to help with the books, another offered Foster an outstretched hand. What a terrific story, Dr. Reed, 
As an engineer, a businessman, and a Christian, I had a difficult time restraining my applause until you were finished. Foster smiled, not at the introduction or compliment, but at the recognition of why he'd gotten the lecture right today. He accepted the man's hand and looked him in the eye. The man put his other arm on Foster's shoulder as though they were fraternity brothers. My name is Bill Smythe, and I want to buy you lunch. I'm with America's largest engineering contractor. I'm sure you're familiar with National Engineering Group, NEG. And like I said, you inspired me. Foster didn't let go of the man's hand until they made eye contact. Smythe's eyes were gray, and Foster couldn't help but think they were empty. Still, Foster knew better than to question moments like these. He let go of the man's hand and reached down for his briefcase. One of the hinges strained under the pressure of Foster's notebooks and files. Bill Smythe reached it first, but he didn't lift it carefully, and that hinge popped. Foster managed to clamp the side shut before everything fell out. Once his briefcase was under control, he asked Smythe if he'd discussed investing with Blair Keene. I talked to Blair last week. We've got a team of engineers combing through your book. I'm based here in Washington. Blair suggested I come out today. Foster smiled on the man, recognizing that he was a weapon in God's war, not a soldier. If NEG invested in creation energy, nothing could stop them. A team of engineers? Well, I'd be happy to extend my trip to address any technical questions. Smythe squeezed Foster's shoulder. It's a little too early for that. There are a few hurdles that Keen and I need to jump, but let me tell you this. We think there is synergy between NEG and Creation Energy that can make America safer, stronger, and more righteous. The third man held the door open. He was wearing a wire to his ear and a pair of sunglasses that were straight from the movie Men in Black.